Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk, everyone. Um, uh, today is a topic that is life-saving, I can say for certain. Uh, we're going to be talking about innovation in kidney disease and how payment supports innovation. I am a product of innovation. I mean, I have lived with this illness for over 50 years, since 1968, when they had the Keel dialyzer, uh, invented by Dr. Fred Keel. What a, what a horrible name. I mean, to call a dialyzer Keel, just anyways, that I digress. Uh, but uh, we've certainly innovated over the years, and I'm a product of that. And um, today we're going to be talking about how innovation happens, because payment drives practice, and you don't get innovation if nobody pays for it. So we're going to take a kind of a little bit of a dive into this. So strap in, learn about it, because this is this this is it, guys, because this is what we need to get better care. And if we don't get the payment right, it's going to be we're not going to see anything progress. Uh, Today, we have uh, Kathy Lester, who is a lawyer, um, and she is also one of the smartest health legislative regulatory writing people I know, and very dedicated to getting these policies right. And we've spent a lot of time discussing different policies. And, you know, when you hear that they have volumes of paperwork, um, because it's it's all in the details. It's really boring. And I love people who do this work because I could not do it. So welcome to the show, Kathy. Thank you, Lori. It's an honor to be here. I'm a big fan of Kidney Talk and all the work that that you and your colleagues at Artisan do. It's really um, so wonderful to have so many patients who are willing to speak up for what you need um, in order to live productive and happy lives. And I'm just very lucky to be able to work with you and others to try to help make that happen. Well, you know, I've witnessed so much innovation over the years. And, you know, just to highlight a couple, I mean, I was on acetate dialysis and then bicarb became available. And then, you know, I was getting two units of blood every six weeks. And then erythropoietin came around and you got injections, you know, no longer needed blood transfusions. And then, you know, we moved forward and you have, you know, they had better vitamin D because they knew the kidney had to activate it. It was a certain mechanism. So uh, a lot of things have happened. And and there's some new stuff coming up. And it's so important that we get this right. So uh, why don't we start with so people understand how Medicare works and how people with kidney disease are the only people that have access to Medicare for a, a disease state. Sure. And and this is both a plus and a, and a minus in some ways, because when the, the Congress recognized in the 70s that kidney organ failure could actually, the impact could be diminished in terms of leading to death um, and having an ability to live longer and hopefully one day being able to get a transplant, they expanded the Medicare program which is the federal health care program, and at the time was the only federal health care program that a civilian could be part of. And instead of waiting to 65 to qualify for that coverage um, and the benefits that went along with it, the Congress opened up 
the Medicare program to anyone who had a diagnosis of kidney failure um, three months after that diagnosis. So as you know better than I, you know, the, when you have ESRD versus stage five, uh, you know, kidney disease um, has sort of been by this arbitrary three-month line, and that was what was adopted in the, in the statute. And since that time, Medicare has become the primary payer for the vast majority of dialysis patients in the country. I think the last time I looked at the statistics, so they might be a tad bit out of date, you know, it was around 85% of Medicare uh, patients were in the Medicare program. And that's unheard of. You look at other areas like cancer or cardiac disease, things that we also hear about a lot, and you still have a, a big group of patients under 65 and are covered by commercial insurance or other federal programs. Um, that Medicare is the primary coverage for people with um, kidney failure. Well, and, you know, it, you're so right. It's a win because so many of us are here because we have access to this health insurance. And I'm one of those people. Uh, the downside is is that it can limit innovation. And um, can you just tell us a little bit about how the bundle has changed over the years? So, uh, and I, I like to say bundle because you know when somebody calls you and they say we're going to bundle all your TV products together and give you a a lower rate. <laughs> it's just kind of the same thing, right? And and you know the the whole concept of a bundle is, is meant to drive efficiencies, so you don't uh, create incentive to bill many of the individual parts and instead are looking at the patient as a whole. And theoretically, that um, should be more patient-centered because you don't have the government or someone telling you what to do when if you're a physician or you're a patient working with your physician to figure out treatment options. The downside is it does function as a capitated rate on what you can get. And so depending on how a bundle is set will depend on what you can get. Historically, the program for ESRD started with what was called the composite rate, and it, too, was a bundle. It was a set of services that had been given in the 70s, the early 80s, and and was paid for on a basic rate. Mm -hmm. There was no update mechanism, so no cost of living increase, and people would go to Congress and get that addition. Um, Many of you um, may recall in the early 90s when Epigen came to market and it was a real blockbuster um, in terms of treating anemia, obviously still an important part of patients' treatments today, anemia management. But at the time, it was kept outside of the ESRD bundle, that composite rate, um, because there was a concern about stenting of care and patients not being able right. to access the product. But fast forward to 2008, there was a lot of experience with Epigen. People understood how it was being provided. Airnest had come to market. And there were many other companies that were looking at um, other um, options around ESAs for treating anemia. And so the Congress decided to expand that composite rate into a full-on what they call prospective payment system, or PPS. And within that, the separately billed drugs, with I think the exception of vaccines, interestingly enough, um, (laughs) in these days, you know, all went into a single bundled rate that is then paid out on a per treatment basis. And that amount is meant to cover all of those services that you would receive in the dialysis facility that are related directly to the treatment of ESRD. So I know a very important to patients sometimes to have other IV medications pushed while you're in the dialysis facility. But 
but that might not be for the treatment of ESRD. Those are outside of the, the, bundle. the bundle. This is what would be in that box for you um, for that treatment of ESRD. And so when all of that sort of rolled up together, there wasn't really a sense or a thought about how to address innovation. Right. And that's where we come to the problem you've raised, Lori. Well, the, and what's so interesting is, and I mean, this is just a general number, but, you know, Medicare pays about $250 per treatment. This is give or take. And that includes, you know, the EPO and it maybe be a little bit more, but now they just put Sensipar in the bundle. A lot of different IV drugs that you get are now in the bundle. And it's, it's complicated because when you think about, um, and that's what we're going to be talking a little bit about, is... You know, how is Medicare dealing with new innovation? And and I, I love how they always come up with these acronyms, and maybe you can say them, but I'll, I'll say one's called TADAPA and the other's called TAPINES. I mean, um, so what do those stand for, and what do they help to accomplish? Take TADAPA first. It was the, the first program put into place, and, uh, Laura, you were instrumental in this as well. The community after we saw the uh, new prospective payment system come into being, you know, recognized that there was a lot of hope. You now had an update mechanism that would take into account um, increases in the cost of living. You had a market basket that had been updated, um, which was important to recognize changes in the inputs for that PPS, so what was being used. And you finally had some innovators think, maybe it's worth the risk. Maybe we should come in and try to find um, treatment options, especially in areas where there are gaps in right. patient care. And so the community worked together um, before we even had a product that was ready to go to market, just on the sense that there would be, and asked for a pass-through payment. What I mean by a pass-through is instead of being paid out of that single amount for the bundle, like the two fifty. Let's just use two fifty because I mean average. That's with right. So instead of going through that two fifty, you would pass it through and then be paid for a period of time. Um, the the price is called the average sales price, the ASP, and that's just a technical term that means you know this is what an average based on a calculation um, the drug um, is is uh, purchased for, usually plus some. In, a percentage increase uh, to address differences in negotiation and the cost of administering the drug and storing it, et cetera. So it would pass through, and you'd be paid that amount separately for a period of time. This is not a new concept to Medicare. Hospital patients get it all the time. So do patients in um, outpatient settings, like surgical settings, and it's kind of the way it works in the physician setting. So, you, again, you think of those common diseases like cardiac disease or cancer, where you've seen a lot of innovation, the pass-through payment system has been credited with providing a pathway that allows those providers and innovators to know how they're going to get paid, how a new product will be added to their bundle. Right. And so we wanted something similar to ours. And TADAPA is the Transitional Drug Add-on Payment Adjustment. Well, you know, and what's so fascinating to me about this is because, you know, you have this budget of $250 per treatment, and then a sales rep comes knocking on the door and saying, well, we want to give you this new widget, and you got to use your existing budget. And, you know, dialysis and healthcare is a business. 
and they've already allocated the money or whatever they're using. And and I just know I can't help myself, but I, I sold the product called the Crit Line. And I love this product. And I often heard we don't get reimbursed for that. We do not get reimbursed for that. And that was the barrier to getting that product in in a facility. So what you're saying really is the pass-through is that CMS, rec- Medicare recognizes that um, you know, it takes a lot to get a sales force up and out and educate people of the benefit of a drug. And then they, if they have no means and everybody's going to say, sorry, we're not reimbursed for that, nobody's going to do it. <laughs> I mean, right, it's too right. hard. And, and if you look at the bundle as, you know, the government's best estimate based on changes in input costs every year, just like you do your own budget, right, that bundled rate should theoretically be pretty close with a little margin to the cost of providing services. Unfortunately, what we know historically, and and this has changed over the last couple of years, the amount of the bundled payment didn't even cover the basic cost of providing services before the calcium emetics came in. And so, you know, that's been a real challenge. So TADAPA, you're right, was a real important step forward. After that, the community worked to expand that to include devices and not just drugs. And that's what the, the TIPNES um, component is. And that functions much as the same way outside of the bundle. It's paid a little differently because devices are, but it's that same concept. It's paid beyond that 250 amount. Was it? The real concern that we all have as a community right now is once that pass-through payment stops, there's no mechanism to necessarily adjust the bundle rate to account for the new product. So, yeah. So, I mean, so this just makes absolutely no sense to me because you have a $250 average pay and then they do this to DAPA. They do to DAPA. And, and, you know, and right now there is actually a drug that's out that's going through this. This is why it's a very hot topic. And it's a drug that helps with pruritus. It helps with itching. It helps like something, you know, we all get it with people with kidney disease. It's just that kind that drives you nuts. And there's a possible drug that there is a drug. It's not possible. It's been FDA approved. And um, they're struggling because they, so let me explain. They get the two years of being able to do outside, you know, do this like pass through, right? Or whatever you call it, they they can get billed outside. Mm -hmm. And then after the two years, Medicare doesn't have a mechanism to add it to the bundle. Is, Is that correct? That's correct. And that's what's really kind of an unknown here. Now, you know, there are a lot of technical parts of this conversation, but I (laughs) I think the bottom line is, you know, if we were in the hospital situation or an outpatient situation, every year the government looks at the new products that comes in and evaluates that base rate um, for the services. So let's say you're having cataract surgery. They'll evaluate and say, hmm, a new product is coming in. It's got its pass through. What do we need to do to adjust the cataract surgery rate to make sure that that product can fold in and the bundle doesn't create a disincentive to use the product? Right. That is what is missing in the ESRD program. And while for new drugs, things that, you know, would not treat something within a functional category, and this is where it gets a little too technical, there is a situation that you will have new money But right now, CMS hasn't articulated its decision on whether the new product you referenced, Lori, will be in or out of that functional category. But at the end of the day, that shouldn't matter 
Because if you have an innovative treatment, CMS should look at the rate and say whether it's sufficient to add this new product. Maybe sometime the rate will be sufficient and you wouldn't need to add money. But there are also likely times, um, which I believe this case would be, because there's no money in the bundle for antipyretics, that you would need to add new money. And CMS just needs to tell people that. And the reason they do is because without a clear message, innovators don't want to help in this space. And facilities look at it and say, how can I give this product if I'm not going to be reimbursed for the cost of providing it to those patients? It won't happen. I I go back to the crit line. (laughs) And it's so, it's, you know, we we preach in this country innovation and patient-centeredness. And, you know, uh, what I've learned about this new product and some of the other ones, I mean, this is not the time to, you know, tell a company who's investing to improve care that, you know what, we really don't support you. So it's kind of a crapshoot. And uh, tell your investors it's iffy if you'll ever make money. <laughs> I mean, that's really what it comes down to. It's iffy, if you will. And and then we're going to see our innovation dwindle even more. Um, and I think that uh, it's, it's so important. This is a tough topic, guys. But we need to be educated about it so we can advocate for our peers. Um, so with Tadapa, uh, hopefully CMS will listen to this show and understand that they need to make these um, regulatory changes, right? This is not a congressional change. This is a regulatory change. Right. They have complete authority to do this. And in the case of um, the new antipyritic product, it um, is under consideration right now. So they could start sending those signals as they evaluate it for the TADAPA adjustment. And and they have two options, either leave it out of the bundle because it would be a different functional category. And that's the term that I think people get, you know, mixed up on. But, you know, like you have a category of functional dialyzers. You have a functional, you know, this is a brand new product that's never, ever, patients have never had treatment for it. So that's why it's so unique. And the FDA recognized that, right? Very few products get, Um, considered for breakthrough status, which is very early on in their development, but how the FDA will expedite the review because they think something has such a significant impact for improving patient care that they give it a faster review. And then there's another aspect to the FDA review um, called priority review. This product received both of those. You have the Food and Drug Administration indicating that this is an important drug to be able to get to patients, and they approved it in August. And now it's up to CMS to figure out how to pay for it and cover it. And again, why is that so important? Because the vast majority of dialysis patients who could use this drug are covered solely by the Medicare program or duly eligible Medicare and Medicaid. Right. So they'll they'll never see the light of day. And and if 85% of the patients can't get access to the drug, then the drug won't survive. Um, it, you know, they'll just go make something else. <laughs> Or maybe nothing. I know. I mean, it's really sad. (laughs) It is, yes. And you won't have other innovators, right, Right. who will say, wow, I want to help these patients because they'll say, but I won't be able to get my product to them. So I'm going to go back to cancer. I can hear a shareholder's call now. (laughs) Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? I'm I'm taking my money out of this. Um, that's, that's so important that, you know, you guys have always been so good at Lori in particular about speaking up and making sure the dialysis patients aren't forgotten right. um, in, in that conversation. It's important to be responsible with federal dollars, but it is also important that when you've made the commitment to provide coverage for patients, 
that you do it in a way that allows them the treatment options and innovative care. Well, and, you know, I always see America as being a, a great innovator in the world. You know, we bring a lot of innovation to other countries. They some bring to us as well, but we're we need to be a leader. Uh, let's go into tea pines. All I can think of is mountains and pine trees, tipneys. Um, so uh, tell There's us. There's also tiponies if you want to go that direction. Sounds like a drink, actually. I think we <laughs> might need a drink. Maybe we need to call it to, uh, the ponies drink. We need one. It's not going there you well. Go. Um, so now, uh, so where Tadapa works with medications and different type of um, uh, tipneys, um, deals with equipment and medical devices. So explain a little bit about that and what what needs to be what, what we need to keep on the radar. So that's right. Um, Tipneys works with devices, and it is also a two-year pass-through period. So beyond that, 250 of the bundle. Um, and its pricing is based a little differently, but same kind of, there's a methodology there to reimburse. And I think there are some concerns that the way it's been configured, that methodology may not actually provide the incentive that the pass-through policy is meant to provide. But there's also been an interesting development in there is that in the drug case, if a drug receives a, a specific type of FDA category, then it is essentially eligible for Tadapa and should receive it as long as it's approved and it gets a, a code to be able to be billed. Right. Tipneys and- is slightly different, right? Because it requires a substantial clinical improvement showing, which can be very hard to do if you limit it in certain instances to head-to-head studies or peer-reviewed. So CMS does look at a plethora of information to figure out if it is a substantial clinical improvement over existing technology. Well, and, you know, when we talk about Tipneys, because I think that is going to be the name of a new drink, I think we need to come up with it and figure <laughs> out what we need in it. What do, um, we, need what do we need? We want people to tell us what kind of alcohol needs to be in the Tipneys drink, because I have a I have an issue with this because, as you know, I am a big fan of the product called the Critline. It's a blood volume monitoring device, and I have full disclosure, I worked for the inventor, and I sold that product as a product specialist for four years. And I went to 500 dialysis facilities, and this product should be a standard of care without a doubt. It's as, it's the most, I mean, I, 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 and I'm, they don't pay me to say any of this, okay? I just believe so strongly in it. And uh, when I would go and I call on people, they're like, well, it's not reimbursed. And I'm like, but it can stop the patient. It can help their blood volume. It can make their treatment better. It can make them feel better. And, you know, there was a capital investment of the Critline monitor. And then there was a disposable element that, so it like had two pieces. It fit in kind of both because one was a per treatment because they had a little disposable chamber that goes on, uh, on the dialyzer. And then they had a capital equipment cost. And so this product is still out out there, but it's not really readily available because, you know, the, pro- the, the it, it doesn't have that mechanism. So let's talk a little bit about, like, let's say somebody came before and said, we have this great, incredible, dia- you know, portable dialysis machine. You wear it as a belt. It's ready to go. It's saving lives. How would that work in the tip knees world? 
Sure. So, I mean, one of the first issues is that it still has to be a new device that's defined in um, varying ways. And so it's a little longer than you might think. It doesn't have to just be that calendar year in which it comes into being, but it's certainly not an expanse of time either. And so what, if you did have that new device, you met that definition, um, you would submit an application to CMS for the tip needs. Unlike Tadapa, where it's sort of a three-part test that somebody, it's more of a check-the-box, right? You get your code, you get your FDA approval, um, and your ESRD-related product, and you can go um, to get the, the Tadapa uh, adjustment. For TIPNES, um, they will include in the rulemaking process, which is an annual process, it's based in a specific set of dates. So that proposed rule comes out usually the end of June, early July. The final rule usually comes out end of October, early November, and they will evaluate using a set of criteria and describe that evaluation, the studies that they receive from the manufacturer, and propose to either apply um, TIPNES or not. And there have been a few devices that have gone through the TIPNES process so far. None of them made it in the proposed rule stage to get TIPNES. Um, and I think it's three is the right number, were three different applications were rejected. One of those um, folks or manufacturers who applied um, applied the first year was rejected. The second year um, they applied, the proposal was not to apply tip days. But in the end, in this final rule that just came out at the end of October for this year, um, that device, the outset device, was awarded um, tip days. Um, at the end of the day, based on um, a reevaluation of the data presented for substantial clinical improvement. And so we will have the first TIPNES add-on payment moving forward starting January 1, 2022. So how does that work? So, um, and, you know, it's great because the, the, the product can help with self-care. The machine's a little bit easier um, to use. It's more kind of like an iPad. And I think um, is so. How does it work? Do they do they pay pay the provider up front to use it, or do they give a, an extra reimbursement? Um, how does that work? So what they'll do is they will figure out what is called the list price, and I'm going to try to oversimplify this a bit. Yes, please. Which simple, is simple. An amount that the max <laughs> the contractors who pay the claims, you know, that they will have. And they'll pay, I believe it's sixty five percent of that amount. Okay, so if a hundred bucks, if it's a hundred bucks, they're gonna pay sixty five, which right. makes no sense. Why do they just make it sixty five? I mean, I hate that when I get a hospital bill for like five hundred thousand, like, well, we're really only paying hundred and fifty. Why didn't you just say that in the beginning? <laughs> well, and it also gives you another because then what they've done is they've said, Well, we have home dialysis money in the base rate. So for Tiffany's, we're going to subtract out a certain amount per treatment that we presume um, is already in the bundle. And so I don't remember the exact figure, but it's in that $9 range. And so they'll subtract that off of the $65 as well. And then they will pay that over the the two-year period. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's sort of the basic nutshell they are trying to say we're going to make up for whatever difference there might be. And I know there was a lot of concern that that formula may not be the right one, that it doesn't make sense to, you know, provide that quote unquote offset because it's hard to know whether or not that's really a true comparison, especially when a product is new. 
Well, and and when you talk, I mean, I just want to simplify this, but let's say, you know, they're saying, well, we're going to subtract $10 and put it into this pile from the bundle. They take $10 off of every treatment and put it in the pile, even though the person isn't getting the product, right? It's not for a single person. Oh, not not in this case. This is what's oh, weird about okay, the okay, okay, okay. In yes, this it. case, it's unique. You're right. Normally, if they have a withhold normally um, or an offset, it goes across everybody, whether or not they're getting that product. But in this case, because it's paid outside of the bundle, that um, offset only comes off of the amount that is paid to the facility when the device is used. Okay. Well, and that's kind of interesting because they're taking some money off the payment. I wonder if providers are going to adapt it is, you know, if that's the right incentive. I mean, I mean, it should just, in my opinion, to make it easy, but I know um, we have a, we need money, is that they should incentivize it for a couple of years to use it and then figure out how, how many people adapt it. Um, because if it makes it too complicated, um, and, and I'm a really big proponent of small providers. I love the big ones. They do a lot of work, but I love the mom and pop shops too. They would have a harder time navigating, getting new innovation. It would be, it would be too complicated for them to figure out all those numbers. And if they're actually going to go in the hole or, or whatever the little nuances are. So you know, it's uh, it's it's really important we get this right. I have to tell you that, Kathy. <laughs> um, it totally is because I go back to the thing, the issue whether you know we look at what this country, what this world medical community has done in the last almost two years to to go from zero to a not only a full on vaccine but three FDA approved vaccines or nearly approved, right, and more in the works using technologies that were not widely available in the case of mRNA. And it's, I mean... What we can do. What we can do. And I mean, you know, right now they're... I mean, I know in other countries they use hemodial filtration. I don't know. We don't have that here. Um, I know there was a new dialyzer just invented that's supposed to, you know, pull some more molecules. I mean, that's kind of going out there. But that's that's in the same functional category. So CMS wouldn't even look at a product like that if they take a better car, uh, they take a car and make it a little better. They don't even want to talk about that. And that leads me into my next subject that's kind of scary because when you talk about an artificial kidney and it's basically the dialyzer membrane that there, there's different people think are, are we need to make sure that it's not in the same functional category or it's dead on arrival, right? That's pretty much what it is. And I mean, when I hear about the uh, one, I think we want, did one, Dr. Gura has, has creating one where you like wrap it around you, but it's really a dialyzer that's kind of going around you. It's kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that would be considered or, <laughs> you know, it makes me wonder um, we also have the artificial kidney that would they're working on that to implant. Um, and then the latest topic is exenotransplantation. And I know that there's a certain amount that's paid for transplant. It's not a fee. I mean, that would be they would need, you know, because it would be expensive to do this to get it off the ground and learn about it. Um, that could really be a problem with payment um, for transplant. Uh, I right. mean, I'm, I mean, I'm I'm trying to like not be Debbie Downer here, but um, <laughs> it it does sound like you know we have these great innovations, but we need to have the payment right, and I think more innovators will come to the space. 
Absolutely. And I think the thing that's exciting about the devices in xenotransplants is that, you know, it asks the question as well, is this really dialysis as the bundle has been defined? You know, does it fit within that world? Should it be a different type of program, a type of category? You can imagine xenotransplants fairly easily fitting into the organ transplant world and how um, transplants are paid for. But when you think about things like waitlisting and um, the relationships that we see in some of the new models, like the ESRD treatment choices model, it's not at all clear how that might interact with the traditional Medicare program or even Medicare Advantage. So I think these are lots of challenges that the program needs to think about and really, uh, you know, hearing from the patients and, and thinking through what those care needs are and how we translate that into policy. You said it, payment you know, dictates what you get. And that's true anywhere in commercial plans as well. Follow the money. Follow the money. Yes. (laughs) Follow the money. That's always a term. You you see somebody is like corrupt or, you know, somebody like they're doing something. You're like, follow the money. That'll tell you where everything is, you know, when you're watching the news. Um, You know, and one of the things I think it's great that you brought that up is managed care is basically privatizing Medicare. It's Medicare C. A and B came together. Medicare struck a deal with the insurance companies and saying, we're giving you this much money to take care of the patients. And we have a whole other topic on that. There are a lot of pros and cons to that. <laughs> um, but in interest of time, but is the Tadapa and Tipneys, which I'm really thinking it needs some rum, <laughs> that um, <laughs> um, Tipneys, if you're in managed care, they don't get the payment mechanism. Is that right? Well, at this point, it's, it's really not clear. We know okay. with the experience of calcium emetics that the MA plans um, did not adjust their contracts in that first year of the pass-through, the TADAPA, to cover or pay the cost. And similarly, the Medicare program did not go ahead and forward on the TADAPA payments to providers who were working with patients in MA plans. And so, you know, there was um, a disconnect. And I think there were some concerns that we heard more anecdotally. I don't have good numbers on it nationwide, but that there were access problems. Um, You know, CMS's view is that providers and plans contract with each other and should anticipate things like this. I think that's a little difficult to do when you're in a space that hasn't had innovation. So it's very different than contracting with an outpatient hospital department who actually may have a sense of what innovation you know, traditionally comes in and out of their world. And and they have multiple, multiple bundles over which they work. And so they can, you know, do better on some, lose on others, and it works out at the end. ESRD has always been a one-bundle system, which makes, you know, impossible to navigate. Well, you know, I I am a board member of Kidney Care Partners, and, you know, I've been a member since, like, 2004. And I feel like I've had an education over the last 17 years following this. And it's a lot for somebody to take in, to just take this in all at once. Um, But there's a couple of things you can do, right, Kathy? There's a couple of things people listening can do. Um, The first thing is, is that if you know a congressman personally, call me. (laughs) That's always a good thing to say because we want CMS to make decisions because it's it's a regulatory, it's not a policy issue. But if 
in turn, they don't do it. The only way you can do it is to get Congress to tell them to do it, right? That's that's really the secret. That's, right. <laughs> um, the next thing is, is that there's these boring things come called final proposed rules. And they want public comment. And we were lucky. We got a lot of patients to comment. You know, it takes five, ten minutes. We tell you the issues and you post it. And these these rules come out periodically. And it's so important that that people who have kidney disease raise these issues. Um, And, you know, it's not in our pay grade. We shouldn't be having to be concerned about this. But they do tend to listen to people who have the illness a lot more. Um, I've heard. <laughs> I've heard I got a little bit bigger voice sometimes. If, you um, do. You absolutely do. And what other ways? I mean, <laughs> other than, you know, yelling at the healthcare staff, why can't I get this product? <laughs> um, uh, which, which, which I've been known to do when I, you know, wanted the crit line. <laughs> but I think, you know, what else can we do as a community? Sure. I mean, I think the most important things are what you highlighted. Make sure your member of Congress knows how important kidney care issues are to you, to their constituents. Um, a lot of times, you know, this is a relatively small group of people nationwide, around 500,000. And so it's easy to get lost in the mix of the big Medicare debates um, that span multiple disease states. And so letting them know, and you've done a great job of that, and I know in particular the California delegation is very, very aware of this important issue, as are the committees of jurisdiction, because a lot of the work that, that you have done, and we have a very strong kidney caucus on um, Capitol Hill because of the work of patients in making sure that their voices are heard. I think it's also important to try to become educated on some of these issues. Mm-hmm. They're very technical, so no one would expect a patient to know every single in and out there. But working with groups, Lori, you're, you're a great example of this, and, and prioritizing some of those areas that are important. Kidney care partners can help um, provide some of that background information as well. But, um, you know, being passionate, and maybe it's a rulemaking, maybe it's a piece of legislation, but maybe it's not. Maybe it's like right now when you know there's something out there that CMS is considering, and sending an email, sending a social media post to the administrator of CMS, to the secretary of HHS, telling them how important it is that they get this right. At the end of the day, the Medicare program still truly believes that the beneficiary access issues are what drive the policy. And the key is to keep them focused on that and to not always, you know, get caught up sometimes in different business models or different approaches that um, are important to address, but that really front and center, sometimes the program needs to take the risk to make sure that the patient gets what they need. And then as we learn more, you can always adjust going forward. But um, erring on the side of patients is the most important thing. And people always get kind of like, oh, my God, I got to call my congressman. Or, you know, actually, they work for us, guys. We pay their salaries through our tax dollars. You know, never take the approach that they don't have time for you. That's their job. That's their job. And if they if they act like they don't want to hear from you or your elected official, just get a bigger bullhorn. That's what really works. And but also be educated when you talk to them, because that's what I know have made a difference. Um, Congressman Schiff is my congressman. 
And he named me, you know, patient advocate of the year many years ago, which was really thrilling. But when I talked to him and uh, he understands the kidney issues and he knows I understand them and we never go on beyond politics about kidney issues, but he knows I'm the kidney girl. And I think that that's important because I've been able to give him a perspective of how things work. And, you know, our elected officials, um, you know, they have lobbyists that work for them, but the patient needs to be the lobbyist, too, (laughs) and lobby them what their needs are. And And they want to hear from you. They do. They go crazy. I mean, it's so funny. I mean, you know, it's everybody thinks it's this big mystery, but um, I'm going to, you know, give a shout out to all the people out there. I have talked to so many. I've I've been at healthcare meetings. And one thing that drives me nuts is that people actually are there and they're telling everybody to call their elected official. And then I ask them if they've ever spoken to theirs and they have it. And I'm like, Wait a second. No, that's somebody else. No, they need to hear from you. They need to hear from the doctors. They need to hear from the nurses. They need to hear from people in their constituents. They need to hear from everybody. And, you know, even my dog sends uh, sends them an email. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but um, you know, Kathy, I really appreciate your dedication. You, you have been in this community a long time. You're very educated about it. I've learned so much about, from, uh, you know, from you and how it works. And uh, let's hope CMS gets this right or we'll be knocking on their door. Well, Lori, it is a pleasure to be here today with you and part of this group. And I would have to say I've learned more from you than I think I could ever share from my side to you. I mean, just the hope and the positiveness and the continual work to get things better, even when it seems pretty impossible. I just incredibly admire. And um, I'm just so happy you you provide all of these opportunities and concrete actions that patients can take um, to make their, their lives better and make sure the government is working for them. And and don't forget the free dog ad- adoption advice. Um, everybody out there, if you want to adopt, if you want to adopt a dog, <laughs> I'll tell you how. Adopt, don't shop. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.